strong voices. It's not just about one state, it's not just about one community, it's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language, I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you from the Calm Radio Studios here in Ubuntu Alice Springs on Narendra Country here in the Red Centre in Central Australia, broadcasting to uh, all nations through Vast Channel 911. We're of course as well coming to you online via the Calm website at karma.com.au. Today is the middle of the working week. It's Wednesday, the 2nd of October 2019. I'm your host, Kyle Dallin. Great to be back with you once again. Well, coming up on today's show, we're going to be hearing from Australia's first Aboriginal ophthalmologist, Dr. Christopher Rala Baker, who spoke with uh, Karma's Paul Wiles. We're going to be hearing that conversation this morning. Also, a New South Wales Liberal Senator has spoken of the Indigenous Voice to Parliament and his support for a grassroots approach. We're going to be hearing that that Y report shortly as well. And also we're going to be hearing from uh, Doug McDougall, who's the uh, grounds manager at Olive Pink Botanic Gardens here in Alice Springs. And he's actually going to be taking people on uh, a bit of a tour to show people about buffalo grass. So learning about it in terms of identifying buffalo grass and how to control buffalo grass as well. So we, uh, we're hearing that morning, that interview that happened earlier this morning on the breakfast program. We're of course as well going to be hearing the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country as well here on Strong Voices. Before all of that though, we are going to head to a track and then we'll be right back with our first story. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right, you are listening to Strong Voices and you're here with me, Kyle Dowling. We're going to head into the first story of the program. Well, uh, buffalo grass, it's it's right around Alice Springs. It's pretty easy to spot when you see it. But have you ever wanted to learn more about buffalo grass to make sure you're able to identify it and whether it's in its green form or whether it's looking all dried or even able to manage buffalo grass, which, you know, is something that people often get quite daunted by? Uh, those topics are actually going to be covered at a buffalo busting tour that's going to be happening later today. Uh, early this morning, Karma's Damien Williams spoke with Doug uh, McDougall uh, from the who's the grounds manager of Olive Pink Botanic Gardens here in Alice Springs, and he spoke to him about the uh, buffalo busting tour. Doug uh, McDougall from Olive Pink joins me in the studio this morning. Doug, good morning to you. How are you going? Yeah, good, thanks. Hi, Damien. And now I just wanted to talk to you a bit about uh, the Olive Pink Botanic Gardens. Can you tell us a bit about, uh, yeah, just a little bit about it? Yeah, so um, Olive Pink, she was originally from Tasmania, from Hobart, and she came to Central Australia, or she studied and became an anthropologist. And yeah, she did a whole lot of work with um, 
Arunda people and Mulberry people, you know, back 80 years ago or so. But yeah, she helped establish the garden with a, a Mulberry gardener. So um, yeah, no, and I'm so grateful that she did that. Just it's a it's an amazing little spot. And, cool. Uh, and how long have you been out at Olive Pink? I've been there for um, almost five years. Yeah. So, so what, what kind of like you're the uh, head head on the, the grants manager? Yeah. 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 So, so what yeah what kind of things do you get up to um, <laughs> on your so, daily? things yeah no no so we've got a, a, a nice nice little team there um yeah uh, a whole lot of um volunteers we've got volunteers that um work at the desert park nursery just to grow a whole lot of plants for for the gardens and for um we had a, a plant sale just um last saturday so there'll be another plant sale next year so yeah lots of great native plants and then yeah, lots of lots of weed removal, um, lots of buffalo grass yeah. um, within the region. So yeah, yeah. So what kind of things can people get up to if they went to the gardens? There's a fantastic walk right up to the top of um, the, the big hill there. So um, yeah, amazing views. Um, there's an amazing um, bird life there. There's um, a really great bowbird bower with, within the garden. We've got lots of. Um, bush food and bush medicine so um and there's like little descriptions of um you know how those plants would be used yeah. so that that's always really interesting and yeah just a nice place to just go and sit and have a picnic or something totally totally oh of course the little um the black-footed rock wallabies there oh yeah there, it's a good spot to see them either in the morning or in the evening so. yeah and, and plenty of walks to go around and just walk oh around definitely definitely yeah. yeah and so now i just wanted to talk to you a bit about uh what you'll be doing tonight with the Buffalo tour um, you know teaching people what to look for and how to get rid of it can you tell us a bit about how, how that all came about for sure for sure um, so like I'm originally from Melbourne and yeah when I first came to Alice Springs I'd never heard of Buffalo grass so I guess I sort of understand um, yeah how daunting it is just you know just trying to identify like Buffalo grass or just to tell it to tell the difference to a lot of your native grasses mm-hmm. so um with my talk tonight which is at 5 five i'll be just showing some of the differences of just how you can identify it just with uh looking at the grass just like just at the leaves mm-hmm. so just when it's in that immature state so even so is it really hard to try and um uh, sort of identify it when it's like just shooting it, it can be i think yeah you just need a bit of help there's the alice springs land care there's um the olive pink land care so you can come along to um some of those groups so then you've got knowledgeable people that can just sort of help you along and then yeah. there's also the land for wildlife they're, they're really good at coming out to your property and just working out the, yeah. the, the good guys and the bad guys so yeah yeah, yeah. so how many how often do you do these uh, buffalo busting tours um this is the first one um that i'm actually doing by myself but yeah they've i think they're sort of like an annual annual sort of event really yeah Yeah. cool alec has done quite a few in the past yeah yeah and if if uh people want to come along tonight so what 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 do they do yeah we'll we'll go for a tour just um i'll show them how to identify them and then i'll just talk about some of the different ways you can control them so we've got some custom made maddox which um i've got like a little twist it's a sort of um, especially designed for those big buffalo grass clumps. Um, I'll talk about uh, controlling them with chemicals as well, just the, how to do it safely and 
uh, the most effectively, most effective sort of way to spray it. Um, yeah, and I'll show some examples of um, some before and afters of um, yeah. There's some really nice patches that have just recovered. Um, it's it's really cool. It's like a little time capsule of when you remove the buffalo grass, just all those little native seeds that come up. It's it's really quite exciting. And, and yeah, like what kind of um, transformation do you see when that kind of the buff the introduced species are, are getting got rid of? Yeah, yeah. I was just down the river just before. And there's um, Chrysocephalums. It's like a silver foliage daisy, and there's just like masses of them just all coming back. It's 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 freaking awesome. Yeah, it's definitely worth going down to yeah. check it out. On that note, uh, Doug, thanks very much for coming in and talking to us here on Calm Radio. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Cheers. That was Doug uh, McDougall, the grounds manager of Olive Pink Botanic Garden, speaking with uh, Karma's Damien Williams. We're going to head to a, a couple tracks now, and then we'll be right back with our next story. Well, on Tuesday, Liberal Senator Andrew Bragg spoke about Aboriginal identity at a conference in Canberra, showing his support for grassroots consultation in a plan for establishing an Indigenous voice to Parliament. The wise Jeanette Stephen files this report. It was an opportunity for me to outline some ideas about how the constitutional recognition arrangements could work in practice. Uh, and one of the things I'm attracted to is having a bottom-up model where community voices could be heard by our parliament. In your in your opinion, do you have a vision of what this should look like? Well, we are committed to adopting the Joint Parliamentary Committee's recommendations on co-design, which the Prime Minister has adopted. Um, as part of that co-design process, I believe said models should be considered. And the model I talked about today is the this is speaking for country model, which was developed by Warren Mundine. Now, this model would involve regional land councils and local organisations uh, participating in a formal uh, consultation with government and the parliament. And it would be a model whereby the, the local groups have the strength, not the national body, if that makes sense. So it's more of a bottom-up than a top-down. You said today that yeah. uh, you would not support constitutional recognition at any price. What does that mean? That's right. I, I believe that there are important principles that need to be adopted if we are to be successful in achieving constitutional recognition. Um, the majority of people in the majority of states need to support a referendum if we are to change the constitution. This historically has not been easy in Australia, but there are important precedents we've seen in recent years, such as the Republic referendum in 99 and the same-sex marriage plebiscite. And so I think we need to present and build a model which can be widely accepted and ultimately adopted as a referendum. What kind of uh, cost could this come at? What what are the the dangers? Well, a a bottom-up voice model, like the speaking for country model which I talked about today um, would obviously not be a third chamber but it would provide an opportunity for the parliament to listen to the voices of of the indigenous people which is what the Uluru Statement calls for. So I think that's a very important component part of any package of reforms in the future. I mean I I just don't accept the argument put by the opponents uh, that you know, race has no place. Um, race has been a feature of the Australian Constitution since it was drafted. And in fact, today, 
laws like native title laws are held together under the Constitution uh, by the races and territories' powers. So I think you know, the Constitution has a history which has been both good and bad. Like most things, it's complex. And my, my view is if we are to achieve only the ninth change to our Constitution, uh, we need to develop a model which could be adopted by you know, middle and mainstream Australia. How, how do you think this will be guaranteed? It, how can it be guaranteed? How can they be guaranteed a say? Well, there are different mechanisms by which that could be achieved. Uh, there is the Antumi model. Um, there are other models that have been put together by constitutional scholars. The model I've outlined today would be a, quite a simple mechanism whereby there would be a requirement to consult and that could be developed by the parliament. So one of my key principles for success is maintaining the supremacy of parliament. So the constitution could say you, you must consult and the parliament could design the type of body that could be used to do that. Now, my view is we should have a bottom-up model to do that, not a top-down model. There will always be various views, right? And so I think, uh, you know, my, my sense is that the co-design process will be able to look at all these different options. Uh, I think it will hopefully be a process which yields a model which could be taken to a referendum. I think all the signs are encouraging. I think there are a lot of good people around this table, and um, I'm, an op- I'm an optimist. Well, what was the conference really about for you? Why did you uh, well, take part? Well, I agreed to I agreed to speak at the conference. The conference was largely about Indigenous identity, and and I agreed to speak at the conference because I thought it would be a good opportunity for me to expand upon my first speech to the Senate, where I spoke about constitutional recognition. You've said you've had you've got strong views on constitutional recognition yeah. um, for our first peoples. Why is this an important issue for you? Well, I set it out in my first speech as a, one of a number of important issues to me as a new parliamentarian. And I guess I grew up in northern Victoria in the Golden Valley where there were, you know, on the Yorta land where there are a lot of First Nations people and it's been part of my life as far as I can remember. So it's always troubled me that we've had a big disparity in terms of uh, living standards and I also felt that although I'm a constitutional conservative, that the Constitution ought to reflect the fact that there's been an ancient civilization on this land um, which is part of Australia's past and part of Australia's future. I think it's important that we, you know, um, we are uh, um, open and honest about our, our past and our future, and I think this is an unfinished business as a nation. New South Wales Senator Andrew Bragg speaking with the wise uh, Jeanette Stephen there. You're listening to Strong Voices here on Calm Radio this Wednesday morning. We're going to be hearing very soon from Australia's first Aboriginal ophthalmologist, uh, Dr Christopher Rala-Baker. Hey, Mob, this is Patrick Johnson, and you're listening to Strong Voices. Be deadly and stay deadly. Yes, that's right. You are listening to Strong Voices here on Calm Radio. Well, Dr. Christopher Rala Baker's expertise covers a wide range of areas, including cataract surgery, diabetic eye disease, as well as age related macular degeneration, but also general ophthalmology. Mr. Rala Baker, or Dr. Rala Baker, was actually Australia's first Indigenous ophthalmologist, and he's been a strong advocate for eye health care as well as Indigenous health access in Australia. Well, this morning, Dr. Rala Baker will be sharing a bit about his story and begins by providing a bit about his background and explaining his family connections. My mother from Brisbane. I grew up on, on country, on Yagara country. On my mother's side, I'm also Birragubba and Warangal from North Queensland on mum's side, and Radjuri on dad's side. Mum 
has a number of brothers and uh, and her mum was very, very well known in the Aboriginal community in Brisbane. Her mum was the country's first Indigenous arts curator and helped set up the Aboriginal Medical Service in Brisbane. After finishing Year 10, mum went to work in the first cohort of Queensland's Aboriginal health workers, so there were three of them, and she went up to work in Aracoon as an Aboriginal health worker way, way back in, I think it was the early 70s. She met Dad up there, who was working in the Gulf as a scientist, and uh, then, of course, you know, they kept in contact. They then moved to Canberra, and Mum became a public servant and has worked in health for a long, long time. Dad's story is that he grew up in Sydney, and uh, he, only in the last couple of years, his side has uh, rediscovered their Baradjuri uh, heritage, and that in itself is, you know, one of these classic stories. His dad made a comment on his deathbed and next thing there's this whole side of the family that they didn't realise existed. But he's of, as I said, Radjuri heritage, but also Scottish and Jewish. And so that's been an interesting journey on his side with the different influences there and and the Jewish story and uh, the connection to, to Melbourne and, and then how his grandmother came to be in Sydney. So like a lot of our mob, it's a, a very interesting family history with all twists and turns. When did you first realise that being Aboriginal brought certain things with it, some good and some not so good? Oh, from my earliest memory. Canberra in the late 70s, early 80s was certainly a much more open-minded place than, than Queensland was at that time. And so I had the great privilege of spending time in Canberra in my early years. And in, in fact, because there weren't that many blackfellas working in the public service, so everybody knew everybody. And, and mum actually knew Uncle Neville Bonner from, from the days of Opal, the One People of Australia League in Brisbane. So that was before he became a parliamentarian. And, you know, he knew Nana and, and all the rest of it. And he's younger man as well. So she had that earlier connection from Brisbane, moved to Canberra, came to know a lot of people in Canberra. And, and I guess what I'm getting to is that Canberra was a reasonably uh, supportive environment in my very, very early memory. Uh, when we went to Queensland, it was different. And even as a, as a child, I knew it was different. You, you could feel it was different walking along the street. It was different at school. So I was in Canberra. I did kindy down there. I was recommended to miss grade one, go straight into grade two. Uh, and because, you know, I was, I was a, a, a bright kid, we went to Queensland and not only did the Queensland education system say, no, you're not going to grade two, you're going to go into grade one. Oh, and by the way, you can do English as a second language, of course, and we'll take you out of class for six months because your mum's dark. No one, of course, ever bothered approaching mum to ask her if she could actually speak English, which, of course, she does very fluently. So <laughs> it was it was a mixed early experience from being somewhere like Canberra where the 10 embassy was set up and the great movement from the 70s you know, it was still very much right in the crest of that and the old Aboriginal Development Commission and, and later ATSIC. That that was all happening in Canberra to then come to Brisbane. So even as a young child, I knew it and you can feel it. It's around you and it's real. Mm -hmm. And when you walk down the street, it's obvious. I was very fortunate to go to a, a private boys' school, actually. And, and when I finished Year 12, less, less than 1% of, of Indigenous kids finishing Year 12 actually even went to a private school and our, our numbers of people finishing year 12 were quite small. So I was one of an extremely small cohort and it was daily that, that comments were made and, and you know, the, the, the ridiculous Aboriginal jokes. And I was, I was the only Murray kid in my form. 
Um, my brother below me, uh, in the year below me, was the only Murray kid in his form. And then there were two brothers in in the years ahead of us. And it was tough going. It was it was really tough going. I'd like to think things have, have improved now uh, in the system. We're, we're definitely getting more people finishing year 12, so that's an enormous change for the better. And uh, even we're getting people through through the private system as well as the public and, and through getting really good educations through, through both systems. I was tossing up between doing law or medicine and for a while there I was thinking about being a, a barrister and then uh, also thinking about being a surgeon. I ended up doing medicine because there was a, a fantastic program run through the University of Newcastle in the early days of Aboriginal medical students and, and doctors, very, very early days when we were getting our first people through. And it seemed an obvious choice that here was a program that supported our mob and we had some amazing people going through and some great influences like the first president of the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association, Dr Lewis Peachy. He interviewed me for medical school. Remarkable people. And I thought, yeah, this is this is what I want to do. This is this is for me, and and I can do more in the health space than what I could in the legal profession. Uh, was was my thinking, and so I, I chose medicine. My path has been a little bit different to my non-indigenous colleagues, and and we find that a lot in Australian Indigenous Doctors Association. Our mob. Uh, have have varied pathways. A lot of us don't come straight from school like I did. A lot of us have had other careers and been health workers or mechanics or all kinds of things. So my path, like a lot of our mob, uh, didn't just follow a straight line. So I went to medical school, did... did uh, Newcastle was a five-year program down in Newcastle, and that was really hard being away from home, but it mm. was the support unit down there and, and the other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students who you know, we just banded together and, and got each other through... I finished down there, I went to the Gold Coast, did my first year out, which is called your intern year, at the Gold Coast, and then I went back to Brisbane and worked in one of the very, very big hospitals up there, and, and it was brutal. The big hospitals are difficult places to work, particularly back then, because they didn't know what an Aboriginal doctor was, like, people had never even heard of an Aboriginal doctor existing, so it was very much a first mm. in that space, and and it was... All this, there's a lot of talk at the moment about bullying and harassment, not only in medicine but across the board. None of that existed. You were, you were just harassed and bullied and that was it. You had to suck it up or get out. So it was hard. It was very, very conservative. Um, some older consultant doctors with some very unusual ideas about the world and how things operate and race. Mm. Anyway, I did two years there and I thought, no, look, I, I need a break from this and I need, I've been away for a while and I need to reconnect. So I left that job to to the astonishment of everyone around me and they said, oh, you know, that's the end of your medical career. You'll never get on a training program. You'll, you'll never be anything. And But I knew in my heart that that's what I wanted to do and my, my gut said, no, let's, let's change it. So I actually went down to work on the south of Brisbane uh, in Woodridge in the Logan Bay Health Service District and established the Indigenous Health Unit down there. And officially my title was a health worker, so I'd gone for a medical doctor and then took up a post as a health worker, which was an unusual move, um, but it was one of the most fantastic experiences I've had. And I grew the unit down there. I think we had two health workers when I arrived. We had 12 when I left 18 months later, handed over to some really clever and, and able uh, Murrays from, from around Brisbane. 
And that unit's gone from strength to strength. I'm really proud of the work that I did there. And I went from there to work on a hearing hearing health program in Queensland with a wonderful ENT surgeon. And I was there for about six months, extending the program to become a statewide program. And it was that ENT surgeon who said to me in his car on Spring Hill, uh, so, Chris, uh, I'm involved with selecting, you know, ENT for the state, and I really want you to come back to medicine. Are you interested in ENT? And I thought, oh, gee, in my head. And I had a split second to answer, and we're in the car there in his old Volvo. I thought, in my head, I don't want to do ENT, but if I say no, what's, what's going to happen? So I thought, no, I have to tell the truth. And I, I said, oh, look, thanks for the offer, but I, I actually don't want to be an ENT surgeon. And the car went quiet because I don't think, as a senior consultant, he'd, he'd been refused anything before. And to his 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 great credit, he said, all right, well, what, what would you like to do? I said, in honesty, I'd like to do ophthalmology, but I, I'm not related to any doctors. I, I don't know any ophthalmologists. It's, but that's my dream. And right then and there, he, he picked up his phone and, and, and uh, called a colleague of his, and, and that was my contact, and it, and it went from there. So then I came back to medicine and uh, made my way into the, the training program with the college and then did training with the college, um, which was an interesting process in itself and, and uh, for a number of reasons took longer than it should have, but uh, I got through and, and here I am now. You know, I look back and I think, what an incredible life, and I'm not even that old. But I was 18 years old, and it was 1997, and the University of Newcastle arranged a meeting just north of Newcastle at Nelson Bay, on uh, Salamander Bay, actually it was. And we had 50 people there. Five were were Aboriginal doctors and uh, from Newcastle who'd, who'd finished through Newcastle, and that was pretty much it for the country at that time. And we had about 20 medical students. Again, I think about 18 of us were from Newcastle. I think there was one from Tasmania and one from somewhere else. And we had 25 other people. We had representatives from Nacho, so Puggy Hunter was there. Um, we had people from um, Canada, so Native Canadians, Native Hawaiians, people from Te Ora, our brothers and sisters in New Zealand, who've had doctors for a long time. And we all met. And we were in awe of these people from overseas, just looking at them like, wow, these guys have had doctors for decades and they've got their own organisations and they're so organised. And look at us, uh, we're all new and okay, let's let's form this organisation to support each other and and get each other through. And that, that meeting, it was decided we would form an association. That association became the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association. And it is just remarkable, the success that we have had it is absolutely remarkable. We went from that very small, humble beginning, not knowing what was going to come of it, and in fact being quite scared to have the audacity to sit there and just by existing challenge the system, just to exist. And then to form an organisation was, we thought, wow, we're going to have pushback. And, and it's again, it's been an interesting journey, but it's been such a positive journey where now we have over 500 graduate doctors and in fact a number of them are working here in Alice. I just literally saw one today, we bumped into each other in, in the cafe and we all know each other and the other day I bumped into one of our medical students and we've got over 300 medical students across the country and that's in 20 years. It's a phenomenal result, absolutely phenomenal. Who were some of the core members of that group? Again, Lewis Peachy was, was uh, a big driver. 
Um, Dr. Mark Wenatong, who's uh, up in North Queensland, uh, was a big driver. Uh, Dr. Nairi Brown was was a driver, and uh, Dr. Noel Heyman. They they were four big names, and in fact, they formed the original secretariat uh, and and executive of what what became AIDA, and and great leaders with with great foresight. And they were going to meetings and, you know, meetings where they knew that these people were suspicious of these, these you know, these black doctors and who are they and what are they here for and what are they up to? And, and they have these incredible stories about how they would have to work behind the scenes to, to organise support for them, for a motion that might be coming through or a vote that might be happening. And, and they'd have to sit on multiple committees and feed feed our perspectives, our Indigenous perspectives into these committees. It's fascinating talking to them. They're incredible people. So they were the the guys carrying the banner early on because we were medical students. We, we had medicine to get through. We, we had a mountain to climb. And, you know, they, they drove it and formed the organisation. That was uh, Australia's first Aboriginal ophthalmologist, uh, Dr Christopher Ralebaker, speaking with Karma's Paul Wiles. We're going to be going to a song now, and then after that we'll be hearing the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. Hi guys, this is Dan Sutton, and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Yes, that's right. It's Strong Voices here in Canberra Radio. Now it's time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country. Very happy to welcome into the studio Karma's Damien Williams. Good morning, Damien. Good morning, Carl, and good morning to all our listeners. Well, Damien, I understand you have a story for us this morning in regards to uh, bilingual stories for young children. Yes, a mother's group in Nuka in the southeast Arnhem Land is taking on the challenge to translate much much-loved children's books into language with the support of the uh, this story coming from the ABC um, with the support of the Indigenous Literacy Foundation the Nuka Language Centre the parents from the Guluman Centre playgroup have translated three favourite bedtime stories into Creole the the very cranky bear who's hiding and head, shoulders, knees and toes are now more accessible to local children. Uh, and you know, printed as stickers, the Creole version of the story is um, plastered below the English so the children can learn both languages from an early age. Um, Venetti uh, Ngal- Ngalmi the Indigenous Coordinator for Early Childhood at the Language Centre, said the playgroup parents had been personally selecting books to translate. The, very, the parents chose The Very Cranky Bear and worked very hard on not only to translate the story, but also to perform it in the classroom as well. So, yeah, that's, you know, awesome to see that, especially um, creating a bilingual book just by translating, you know, having the words in Creole underneath the English is is a great way to start, you know, le- teaching kids to learn to read in language and English. It's, and yeah. and definitely those books at that early age, you know, that it's such an important time and to be able to, I think, read it in both of their languages, I think mm. it's really important, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, as, as um, a lot of studies have shown, that learning in your language first and then learning English uh, or learning other languages is a great way to be able to learn quicker as well. So having both, you know, right under each other is, uh, I think, is just, um, yeah, elevate 
and you know take languages right up through and hopefully hopefully they'll be um i think they'll be looking for to do some more books as well okay. so i still i still think one of the ones that i remember the most from when i was a kid i, I think because i went to yipperunia when for a little bit my mum worked there i think the Tiddalik, the Tiddalik, frog, was, yeah. <laughs> was probably my favourite one. <laughs> yeah, and uh, another one that was going around too was that um, emu wombat stew. Right, yes, yeah. I do remember that one. <laughs> that one was uh, um, pretty cool. And how the birds got their colours. Yes, that's another good one. Yeah, so, and like, you know, in in the Territory, more than 5,000 children picture books have been translated into Aboriginal languages and given to families throughout the Territory as well. Um, the initiative is part of the Families as First Teachers, FAFT, a program to support support bilingual uh, literacy and early learning centres. So, um, great to see here in the Territory. Definitely. Well, on that note, Damien, thank you so much for joining us for the news from around the country. Thank you. Well, that's going to conclude uh, Strong Voices for this Wednesday morning. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you missed any of the stories or want to listen back to them, make sure you head to the Karma webpage. That's uh, karma.com.au. Also, I'll be posting up a podcast of today's show as well on Karma SoundCloud. Make sure you enjoy the rest of your day, and we'll be back the same time tomorrow. Strong Voices.